Welcome to the Hamilton Institute seminar series. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Niel Pettit, who started his life as a control theorist and did his PhD and postdoctoral studies in control theory, but then made the big step into industry since when he's become somewhat of an expert in designing factories to make products from ideas through to the, to the end device and the, the whole process that goes in between. And we thought it would be very interesting, given in mind this is an ideas factory, to see how you would turn the ideas into a product in a real factory. And that's what Niall will be talking about today. Niall, over to you. Thank you very much, Peter. Yeah, so my name is Niall Pettit. I work for, for Danfoss and uh, I work in uh, part of Danfoss, which is called the business system. And our uh, task in Danfoss is to improve all our processes in our business. And processes are anything that does anything. So how we produce, how we sell, how we make products. And I've spent the last well, it's nine, 2007 and so on, being looking at how to improve our product development processes. And, and by that, I'll come into that. That's uh, developing from the idea, where do we get the idea, how do we uh, sort out ideas, how do we turn those ideas into, uh, into confirmed business opportunities, and then how do we take them forward and actually create a product and then get it on the market and sell it as we uh, have planned. So. Um, it's, it's going, I'm going to take you through the journey of, of what is product development and, uh, and then how can we improve product development? What, what's the underlying factors? And you'll find that there isn't much talk about technologies in this. It's all about people and processes. Uh, the technology part is always, you can say, uh, difficult at some level, but in many terms, compared to our other challenges, it might even be the easy part for us. You know finding technologies or solutions, uh, there's a lot of people who are quite good at that, trying to put it together in a multidisciplinary effort to turn it into a product um, that people want to buy. That's actually quite difficult. Um, so multidisciplinary is, is a given. I think it's great. It's a privilege to be at this institute. You already a multidisciplinary idea generation. And one thing's for sure, if you ever go into industry, nothing gets done without being multidisciplinary at some level. You, if you can't work and understand people who are doing something completely different to what you're good at and, and find a way of, of using their expertise and couple it with yours, uh, you're not going to get anything through the machine. Um, it'll get lost. I don't know how many of you have worked with industry or have had any exposure to product development on any level. Anybody? <laughs> a few, uh, a few. So, so I'm going to start from the beginning, as it were. Um, um, I cut the abstract down. I sent Peter quite a long abstract, and uh, I think it was because uh, um, it was sort of uh, quite late, and I thought I'd better run it off. So it ran into quite a few words. So I tried to cut it down for the sake of the talk. So, so this is my summary of my abstract. Uh, so it's about doing the right thing and doing it in the right way in terms of product development. Just before we start, I'll say a little bit about Danfoss, so you know where I come from, and, and, and I do the sales pitch, which is uh, always important. Danfoss is a, a, a fairly large company, uh, headquartered in Denmark. Uh, we're split into three main divisions, and a division, if you want, it's a theme in the company. We have a, a majority shareholding on a fourth, but I'll leave that out for now. So we have a division that focuses on, on cooling, so air conditioning, uh, refrigeration, um, everything to do with cooling, um, in terms of the controls around cooling. We have a division focused on heating, how to heat your house, 
um, in many different ways. Again, it's the control side. We do the valves, the controls, the actuators, uh, the electronics around heating. And then we have a division we call motion controls, uh, which is sort of a bit of a mishmash, but its main theme is variable speed conver uh, frequency converters, so um, controlling speeds of motors, basically, lifts, cranes, process belts. You want to vary the speed, um, and, and that's what they build. So uh, if you ever couple one of our drives and try and do inverted in pendulum, pendulum experiment, that drive will do it on some pretty big pendulums, uh, no problem at all. So this is Danfoss. I sit in this uh, corporate function, Danfoss Business System, and we have a mandate to go across all these divisions uh, to look at the processes and improve them together with the people working in those processes. Just to give you a flavour of the company, uh, each of these divisions have business units. Each business unit essentially is a business, as you would uh, sort of think of a business, with its own product lines, its own uh, development departments, um, and uh, markets and so on. Some of them overlap, some of them don't, but uh, it gives you an idea of the kind of things we make. So controls for commercial refrigerators, uh, the electronics, the brains, uh, compressors, these are the engines of all uh, refrigeration systems, air conditioning systems. Uh, in the heating, we're doing again controls. I haven't seen any in Ireland, but if you go to anywhere that thinks about their energy usage on radiators in your house, you'll probably have a thermostat on it that will be self-actuating and uh, yeah there's a one in two chance that it'll be ours pretty well because we own we are the biggest player in that market um, and then we have a lot in district heating so those of you coming from countries that have district heating uh, we work in that with the number one producer of these types of components to control district heating uh, we do heat pumps I don't know if any of you uh, have started thinking of uh, new energy sources but heat pumps are an expanding business uh, so normally you can heat your house using district heating uh, you can heat your house using gas you can heat your house using oil still very popular uh, but dying you can heat your house using electricity and now you can heat your house using district heating uh, I mean heat pumps so basically it's a compressor that's uh, taking energy out of the earth or the air or the water if you're near a lake and uh, cooling that a little bit, sucking the heat out of that and converting it into heat for your house. Um, so it, it, mean, it runs on electricity, but it's about a third of the cost as if you're heating your house with electricity alone. Um, so that's uh, very important. And then the motion controls. We do do ventures. Uh, we have a fairly active venture business, which uh, or emerging business looking for new opportunities. I'll come back to ventures, because product development is not the same as ventures. So, uh, and uh, we split those out, and I'll come back to that. I think that's quite important to understand. I think a lot of people think of product development you know, as creating the new big bang, the new great thing. That's not quite true. Uh, often, the new great thing means creating a new business, complete, a new complete business. And that's a venture. That means you're creating something completely new, new product, new technology, new market that's trying to open something that's never existed before. And we have a few. I picked three that are. Interesting, I think they're interesting. Um, AquaZed, I don't know if you've ever heard any of these, but AquaZed I think was voted uh, one of the top 100 uh, most interesting ventures in the, the emerging uh, uh, sort of environmental scene uh, by some Californian uh, venture capitalists. They basically uh, use aqua 
the acroprotein proteins, which basically uh, allow you to develop active membranes that can filter any kind of uh, seawater or, or unclean un, uh, water and produce clean water in a very inefficient and cheap way. So it's, it's, it's looking to create potable water for the that don't have access to clean water. And that's a very, very interesting technology we've got in the nature. Solar inverters. Sounds a bit more straightforward, it is, but it's an emerging business we have. It's starting to grow very fast. There's a very large solar explosion of solar businesses, uh, solar energy businesses around the world, particularly in Germany, uh, US, China, and solar inverters, of course, is the, the heart behind the solar panels to get the energy there. Turbocore, that's another interesting one, compressors, these pumps up here, they're basically, uh, they've been around a long time, um, and they... Uh, they, they are basically what form the heart of any cooling system, heating, uh, uh, air conditioning system. Also, any heat pump type system is a compressor. It's used everywhere. Um, and of course, if you can make that more efficient, like a car engine, or more effective, you're going to save a lot of energy in a lot of places. And, and TurboCore is a new technology based on uh, uh, levitation technologies. We, we levitate the axis using magnetic bearings, and then we use a kind of turbo idea from the aircraft industry to, to speed up and compress the air uh, on this floating axis. And it, it works for very, very large systems, so it's for, for huge buildings. Um, and you can create in a very, very small unit uh, a huge power uh, and compression ability out of that, so, um, and uh, much more energy efficient. So these are the kind of ventures we're doing. So that is Damfoss. It's uh, international. This is a spread of the production sites we have around the world. Uh, we're about uh, 22, 23,000 people. We're about a 3 billion euro company. Uh, we have about 70 factories, uh, plus or minus, and uh, 113 sales companies. So that gives you a picture of who we are. So that's the sales pitch. The, uh, what is product development? I'll start with that before I go into how do you improve, how do you work with product development? What is product development? This is a sort of a stuff model. So if you think about, you know, you want, you've got everything, all your ideas, all the things you could possibly do. So what you're really trying to do is you've got real stuff and fake stuff. So you've got all these ideas. What's the real stuff? What's the stuff that actually has something that is going to produce something of value to the company? And what's the fake stuff? How on earth do you find out what's real and what's fake? Uh, what's interesting for you? What's going to be, uh, make your money? It's not always easy. That's the first split. So we need to try and figure out a way of doing that. Once we've got the real stuff, we have to find out what's great stuff, meaning stuff that we can actually do. It's interesting to us. Uh, it's something uh, we want to work with. And what's disappointing stuff? We're not going to be able to do much with it. We need to, maybe we can give it to someone else who, who can do something with it, um, and so on. And this is sort of the art of coming up with ideas and turning them into products. Once you know the great stuff, you better move on it quickly as well. Because there's a lot of very, very good people out there, and they're going to move on it as well, because if it's great, then it's not just you that's going to come up with it. Someone else is going to come up with it, and they're going to come up with it pretty, pretty quickly. Cool stuff, nice technologies, snazzy ideas, great things to do. That's actually found everywhere. So 
innovation is not the same as technology. Technology can appear in you know, real stuff, fake stuff, great ideas, cool stuff can appear everywhere. Um, so I want to separate technology from innovation. If I just go into a sort of world picture of product development and how it all looks, ventures, new to the world stuff, so new breakthrough ways of doing things, the things that you've never seen before, the new technologies that just open uh, people to eyes to something never existed before, that, that's not what most product development's about. That, that, that's up in the venture world. You also have something very incremental going on, and this is something that usually is done locally, so often we'd say it's in, in the supply chain in our language. So you have your product development departments and they're helping you do, uh, create new products, but all the time, all across the supply chain, people in production are trying to make their production equipment better, and they're trying to make the products better by tweaking things there. People in sales are trying to make the way they sell better all the time. And all this is also doing some kind of innovation, some improvement on the product, and that's down here. The core of product development is this bit here. So it's when you're trying to, say, create a new product within your line, add something to your current line of products. We have a certain type of compressor. We want to create some new type of compressor in that for a new area. Improvements uh, or reposition our products. They're large steps in our product portfolio. So we have a, something that looks like this, and we want to add electronics to do it. We have a mechanical valve. We want to make an electromechanical valve that can talk to the web and start doing some very fancy things with your house. These are large steps. They all lie here. They're all cross-functional in nature because none of them can be done without technology, development, production, sales, marketing, speaking together and working together to come up with the idea. Uh, if, if technology do it, if production do it, um, you're not going to get anywhere. If product development just come up with a, a new idea, it's guaranteed probably not producible, probably not sellable, and uh, nobody's really interested in it. They need the other people to tell them what, what is it the market wants, what's out there, and then they can solve the, for the right uh, product. I just drew this. I, uh, it's not, we, we're a business to business, so it's a little bit different from, from selling to consumers. So, so when you're buying things, you're buying things very much on emotion. Uh, when we sell to businesses, businesses tend to be very... Uh, uh, intelligent when they buy so so the person we sell to knows our products inside out he knows how it's built he knows the specs he knows the technology behind it and so he's pretty sharp at trying to tell us what he wants and also what he's going to pay uh, it's not quite the same in consumer but otherwise there are a lot of similarities and i picked this one because apple is often thrown across the world as the innovative company you know the the miracle of the itunes and so on but if you trace and as we as we've done and just look at the way Steve Jobs and Apple have taken their first base, the, 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 the iPod, and moved it through. If you look at every time he releases something new, it's, I wouldn't call it innovation, but it's, it's very, very good product development. Because every time he does something new, it's, an, it's, it's a small tweak on something he's already done. It's an integration of perhaps, perhaps he takes his uh, uh, OS software here and some features and moves it across here. Perhaps he migrates. Uh, some of his technologies from one part to the other. One thing's for sure, every time he releases it, you pay for it. Uh, so when he released apps from his iTouch to here, the first iTouches had no apps. The next iTouches allowed you to have apps. Everyone who bought this one had to pay to get the ability to download apps. Uh, that earned him a fortune, and everyone did it happily. There was no complaints that we had to pay. Every time, and then he adds a camera, and that's a revolution. 
to the next one. So if you want a camera, you have to buy a new device, and people do it. Uh, he plays with these, and every time he does anything, he never does too many things. You never get a new generation that's too many features. You know what they are. It's not like Windows where there's about 500 things that have gone on and you don't know any of them. You know exactly which three things he's done and, uh, and he puts a price tag on it and you pay it. And that's good product development and marketing because um, he does something, he doesn't do too much, you understand what it is and you pay the difference. And he earns some money and you're happy. So what's a good product? There's, no, there's nothing about technology in this. A good product is something that the customer sets value on, meaning that you and me think it's worthwhile paying for it. And most customers today, I mean, most customers are quite careful about their money, especially business to business. They pay for something that gives them value, and they don't mean it just makes them feel good. It means it saves them three times more energy, or it means when they install it, they can do it for half the cost. It has to be real concrete value, something they really value. Um, they'll pay for something new that they haven't seen before. Usually it solves a problem they, they, they've been struggling with. And it has to create cash flow for the company. These two things are the core of any product development. And I mean from idea all the way through to getting onto the market. This is central. It doesn't matter what you do. So if you look at value for the customer, I don't know if you ever thought about value for the customer. What does that mean? If I take two customers, take shaving, two types of customer. One type of customer, he likes to shave, but he likes it to be smooth, and he perhaps gets an irritated face. Another type of customer, he just wants to shave, get it done with. He doesn't really care, you know, just quick, cheap. They're going to look at the world very, very differently if you look at value for the customer. So. If we look at price, take Gillette and Bic. Gillette costs a lot to buy a Gillette razor. Bic razor is very, very cheap. So if you go on price, you know, why buy Gillette? Bic's by far the cheapest. If you go on the actual sharpness of the blade, okay, Gillette have three or maybe four or five or whatever they keep adding, but Essentially, the Bic and Gillette shave, the razor sharpness today on a new blade, of course, you have disposables, is not that different. They're, they're pretty good, both of them. If you go on skin care, the, 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 the effect it has on your skin, there's a big difference. Gillette is smoother. It has three or four blades. It, it creates a much cleaner way of cutting the hair off your face. It doesn't rip it out. Uh, and it ha usually has some kind of strip to help make that work better. So there's a difference between these two, and a huge price difference, and yet both sell incredibly well. So what's going on? The, both have essentially identified why a customer will buy a shaver, and they've gone after that. One's gone after this customer, and one's gone after this. And it doesn't matter, there are many, many types of customers out there for us. Many types. What you don't want to do is try and make a shaver for both of them. You need to know what you're doing, and you need to know why you're doing it. If you make a shave for both of them, it'll lie somewhere in the middle. It'll cost a bit in the middle. It'll probably have the same shaving capability and lie here. And if you're a customer, you're going to buy this one or this one, but you're not going to buy something that sort of half does the job that you want. So what's going on? If you're customer one, what's going on in your head? Why, why is customer one buying Gillette? Maybe it's 10 years. I don't know what the price is. Uh, 
this is roughly translated from Danish prices and they're quite expensive but a Gillette uh, maybe costs you 10 euros so why am I going to spend 10 euros for a set of razor blades what, what's going to make me do that what am I thinking well I'm thinking the BIC, if I buy the cheap one, it's going to hurt. I'm not going to, it's not going to feel good. I'm going to have a lot of problems there. So I probably, if I buy this one, I'm going to need some kind of skincare cream or something. That's 15 euros for me. So I'm looking at 16 euros against 10 euros in my head. So this is a good deal for me. So my value says I'll buy the Gillette. It's 10 euros. It's the cheapest option for me, for what I want, for what I value. Now, what's the one euro guy? Why does someone buy BIC? That's one euro. What's he comparing with? Why is that a value proposition? Well, he's looking at something slightly differently. His alternatives are don't shave, probably. So it's shave or don't shave. You know, just something quick and cheap and does the job. So that's zero euros, and he wants to shave. So one euro is a good deal compared to zero euros to shave. And he's looking at the Gillette and thinking, no in hell am I going to spend 10 euros for a epoxy razor blade. So BIC looks really good to him. That's his value. So value is incredibly important. It doesn't mean there's one value. There are many values. The only thing in product development is you know which values you're going after, and you're very clear on them, and you go after them, and you don't compromise on those values. Those values you know the customer is willing to buy for. That's what you aim for when you're designing a product, and that's what you build into your product, and then uh, you're going to sell it. The worst thing and try and imagine it, someone is in the middle, why would anyone buy a product in the middle? They, 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 wouldn't, they would always go to the other extents because Gillette does its job really well and BIC does its job really well. So they're much better deals than someone who's trying to do both at the same time. And that's a big, big trap. Okay, cash. Cash flow. The other great important thing in all product development cash flow for the company. We can't do things if we don't earn anything. We have to pay all those people who are working for us. We have to pay their wages. We have to pay our shareholders some money. If we can't generate cash, then we can't do the product. And cash is about, you have all these wonderful guys in your company, the technology guys, development guys, sales guys, and they've all got these wonderful, complicated things that they really think is uh, going to be the wonderful product of the future. And somehow, we're going to get cash. In, we need to, in our product development process, make sure that we have the detail on how we go from A to B here. Uh, uh, companies often work like this. This is, this is, this is it's not just in outside companies, in companies. This is not unknown. So cash, all innovation comes back to cash. There's a big statement. So how do we think about cash? What is cash when we're looking at that? You've got an idea. It's for free for us. You know, by the time, okay, it can be a little bit expensive, but basically, at this point for the company, we haven't invested much. We've got all these ideas, things we could do. Uh, so that, so for that, at that point in time, it's free for us. We're going to have to, if we like the idea and we take a bet on this idea, we're going to have to put some people onto it, and they're going to have to start doing some development work, and they're going to have to start looking at the market, do some market research, find the values. So we're going to have to put money into it. There's going to be no benefit for us. We're going to have to put money into it. At some point, hopefully, the product's done and the factories have learned how to produce it and it's ready to be sold. And then we start selling it and we're going to get the money back. And at some point, we're going to break even. And then after that, 
we can start to breathe a sigh of relief and then we can start to earn some money. And at some point we'll get some profits somewhere out here and then everyone will be really happy up here. So this is cash and it's incredibly important when we're doing product development always to have this in mind because you can see there's a big time here. There's a long, long time for us to put money in before we get it out. There's no instant returns here. So we have to be very sure all the time we're going to get our money back somehow so we can earn money. If we don't earn money, we'll go bankrupt. So we're always looking at the investment. How can you do it cheaper? How can you not spend so much money? If you can do that, you're really going to help yourself down at this end. So we're thinking about this. Speed. If we can get it quicker to the market, it doesn't matter where you are, if you can get it quicker to the market, you're going to save yourself on this curve. It's going to get money, it's going to come into the company quicker and pay for the product development. So we're looking at speed. Time. It doesn't matter if we've got the product, if it sits around in our stocks, and unfortunately it happens, we don't earn any money. We need to get it into your hands and you have to want to buy it. So we have to tell you about it we've got this new product, it's going to help you save some energy or whatever it is, don't you think you should buy it? And, uh, and that's a big job. So, but if we can do it right and do it quickly, we can get our money back. And then when it, once it's out there, you know, once you've got that product and it's been there for a few years and something goes wrong, we better make sure that for us, it's cheap to support. You know, if we throw our product out there with a whole stack of technologies we've never really played with before, they keep going wrong and none of our service guys know how to uh, support it and it all gets sent back to R&D because they're the only guys who understand what's going on inside it, it's going to cost us a fortune to maintain that product out in the field uh, because customers have got warranty. Most countries now it's two-year warranty minimum and most companies, especially in the OEM, they want even more warranty. So we, we have to make sure our product lasts for the period. So we're always looking at that. What we don't want to happen, and it can easily happen, is the cash trap that we come down here, we spend too much money, and then we go somewhere here. So what's the cash trap? The cash trap. You'll recognize this. I, I mean, for society, I'm sure it's a wonderful gift. I mean, it's an iconic, iconic development. But the companies involved with it, most of them have probably lost their jobs and gone bankrupt, and a lot of people have, have, have lost uh, a lot of money on this. It was 14 years to market far longer than it should be. So problem number one. Four times the cost planned to develop it. Problem number two. Never sold in any scale. Problem number three. And the people who owned it, it cost them an absolute fortune to keep it on the air. So in terms of a product, this is, it could be iconic, but in terms of a product for a company, the original company who's developing this, this was a big, big disaster. Maybe someone else benefits by buying it cheaply, but uh, it's not what we want to do. You know, if we did this in Danfoss, we wouldn't be around. We'd have gone bankrupt. So there's product development. Those are the key essentials of product development. If you can remember those, then you're home safe. So if I turn it into a little bit more process language, what is product development in terms of a company? This is sort of a world picture of product development that uh, we use anyway. So we have to go from ideas, we have to understand our markets, our customers, what do they want, how do they want to use our product. Our engineers are pretty good at what they do. Um, they can pretty well do, in for the fields they're good at, anything you want them to do. 
but what does the customer want? There's no point putting a very, very fancy control on a, on a radiator that can talk to the internet um, made of plastic esoteric materials, um, you know, sing, dance, control your boiler, whatever you want, and we, you know, we have played with things like that, but there's nobody out there who wants to buy that. There's, there's no, you know, maybe someone, one person wants to buy it, but we need to sell millions of them, and they don't want to buy that. So we need to understand the customer. From that, we need to generate the ideas that are going to serve the needs, these value needs that we identify from the customer. We then need to prioritize. We can't run that many projects. They're quite expensive things to do. They take a lot of time and a lot of people, especially if it's a good product. So we have to select. We don't have that many people, that many resources. We have to select the best, the ones we think will pr produce the most value for us. And then when we start the product, so now we can actually start it, now we can put some people on it and actually start it. Then we have to define the product, and then we have to implement meaning, get it designed, get the production bought, set it up, start producing, and get it, uh, or tell all the customers about it, explain the value, make sure all our service guys knows about it, and launch it, execute. So this is product development. And uh, I'm going to talk about this phase. This phase is just as important, but I'll leave that. I think you had Ruder. Uh, I watched his video. Uh, he was here earlier this year. He actually was talking very much about this, finding these sweet spots on the market where you want to go. You need to give direction to your product development. You know, there are many, many customers in the world. We could sell anywhere, but we can't do everything at once. So is it North America that we need to work with? Is it the large OEMs? Is it the small OEMs? Is it outdoor, indoor? What is it that we're trying to manufacture here? We need to have a clear idea where we think the most interesting places to be are. Once we've got that, then the product development process kicks in. What ideas will people in North America really like to buy, or China today, or Russia, uh, for their new buildings and so on? What is it that they're going to buy? And then we can kick this process in, that uh, is new product development. So this is the, the, the big picture, new product development. Getting your ideas, finding a way of collecting the ideas, screening them, building the cases. A business case is our language for what's your value and what's the cash flow. That's basically a business case. So you don't start things until you know these, these things. At least it's never, it's never certain. You don't know for sure. There are many, many failures on the market here. But you need to be with the best knowledge you know here. What's the value of this idea, whatever it is you've dreamed up, and what, uh, what's it, what's it going to cost? And how many do you think we can sell? The business case. Then you can make your decisions. Technology is an interesting thing. Technology in this world, technology belongs here. It doesn't belong here. We're talking about time horizons here of, I don't know, one to three years maybe. If you have unknown technologies and a, you have ask an engineer to develop a new product and suddenly He's playing with a new plastic material he's never played before, and it has to be produced in our production, and they've never worked with it before. That product will die, because suddenly we'll hit a technology problem, and no one will know the answer. And if that happens, then, I mean, technology, you can't predict how long it takes to solve a technology problem. It takes what it takes, because you don't understand the technology. You know, is this, is it, it could be gluing a new plastic to a metal. We've never done it before. Is that glue going to hold for 10 years in hot water? How do you know? It's a technology problem. So technology belongs here. If you have ideas that are really great, you think you could sell them, but they have technologies in them you don't understand, then you need to 
push the idea back and work on the technology. And when you think you know how to solve that problem, then you can put it back in here and then you can turn it into a product. So technology is not part of product development here. It's part of the preparation. So if you have a great idea and it needs your technology, you don't make the product. You go back and you solve the technology. So you know how to use that technology and then you can make the product. That's quite important. And product development is a risk game. It's all about risk. When you start out here with some great idea, finding the best idea, it's, you know nothing. You have no idea if it sells. You know no idea if no, anybody wants it. You just have a feeling that this sounds right, sounds really good. It's, it should be, you know, we can, we've got an algorithm. It looks like it saves 30% energy if you put it into our compressor. Wow, that sounds a really good idea. But we have no idea. So every step is about how do you reduce the risk, not how you eliminate it. You can't eliminate it until it's in the hands of the customer and they're buying it. Then you've eliminated it because then you know it's a success. But it's about reducing it. So when you're finding the best ideas, you're trying to take out the risk. What ideas can you already now say are going to fail? Take them out in value, in cash flow. What ideas are going to succeed? Let them go through. And then when you've got a few core ideas here that you think are really good, then you can work with them a lot, put a lot of people onto them, and really figure out which of those 10 ideas or five ideas are the winners. As, again, you don't know, but you can work with them, and then you can make your choice and maximize value. Once you've got that, then you take the, the ideas you decided on and create the product, execute as planned. This thing behind that is uh, stage gates. In product development, most companies use stage gates, meaning once you've got an idea, you have to stage it through, a bit like a venture capitalist process, a set of things. So you take the idea, you turn it into a concept. Once you've got the concept, you turn it into a detailed design. Once you've got the detailed design, you install the production, and then you commercialize. That's the big picture. So that's product development. I think, has that given you a picture of what product development's about before I start talking about how do we work and improve it? There are a lot of problems with product development. Decisions to start development of product takes forever. This process here, it can take forever. And I'm talking years. Companies, you know, someone in a company could have a fantastic idea, but the company's 20,000 people or something, you know. That idea, he tells somebody in his little group, and uh, that other guy gets excited. Hopefully his boss gets a bit excited. So his boss says, no, this is great. But product development's cross-functional. So just because an R&D guy thinks it's a good idea and his boss thinks it's a good idea, that's going to get him nowhere. So, so then uh, he has to find his colleague in marketing and say, you know, this is a great idea. Would he sell? And the marketing guy has to say, yeah, maybe. And if you're lucky, the marketing guy gets it. So he goes out and speaks to some customers, maybe. And then some customers say, yeah, that could be really good. Yeah, we like that, go for that one. So, um, so off he goes and the customers, so he comes back and then, then maybe the, 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 the head of the development or the VP or someone in sales says, no, this would be really good, you know. Um, and also customers ask for an idea. And then he comes down and then he says, well, we better find some figures on this. And this can take a long, long time. You know, months, years maybe. It can circle around, float around the company. Different people looking at this and saying, ah, I'm not sure about this, maybe. So, how can we speed that up? Once we've started this place, that can take a long time. It's cross-functional. 
You know, so just because development get the design right doesn't mean production are ready, or doesn't mean the supplier's ready, or doesn't mean the market's ready. So there's loads of things going on there, and so that can take a long time. Forever to launch. There are a hell of a lot of salespeople out in the world that you have to tell about your product before they can tell their customer about the product. That's a long chain. Uh, and if, if they don't get it, if you haven't told them why, why is this good, what's the value, so they can sell it, they're going to not sell it. They'll carry on selling their existing products. So, so launch is quite complicated. Products are always developed to specification. But engineers are very good at saying, OK, what do you want? They'll write it down in code. It's this power. It's this type of connectors. It's this type of uh, performance you want out of it. And then they'll develop something that meets that performance, the specification in our language. But that doesn't mean the specification is what the customer wanted. Once you've done it and you give it to marketing and they say, well, actually, there is no customer that really wants this. I don't know why you did this, but it's not quite what they want and you can't sell it. So how do we make sure specification is what the customer wants? And unit costs. We, do, we, can do, we develop to a cost. People like the BIC. You know, if I sold you a, a Gillette, you'll buy it for 10 euros, but you're not going to buy it for 100 euros. So... The cost is really important if you're going to sell the product. So you really have to know what is it people are prepared to, to sell the product for based on the value they think they'll get from the product. And if you don't get that right, you've got a problem. So those are the kind of issues that I'm dealing with together with the, the group I'm working with. How do we improve these kind of things across our process? So this comes to the principles idea that I put in the abstract. How do we start looking at this, this vast array of, of, of issues, which are all cross-functional, loads of people involved? What is it that's really going on here that really is causing these problems? What are the underlying behaviours that are going on here that if we can tackle those, we can ensure better product development? And these are the principles. So in our language, what we're looking for is the company, they work on their balance sheets. So it's a fact. That's how we work. So they're looking at EBIT, turnover, cash, these kind of things. In product development, we're looking at these kind of things. Again, this is, this is the, the business language of product development, the value of the portfolio, the value of these cash flows, how much cash flow, how big is that cash flow for this idea against another idea. This is very important. This is how we decide what's the best idea. Then there's the value of the product itself, the differentiation, the iPod against, I don't know, some Chinese MP3 player. Why are we going to prepare to pay five, ten times the price for that iPod against the Chinese uh, non-badge product, which can do 80% of the same stuff? Why are we going to differentiate ourselves? Why do, am I prepared to spend that money? I lost mine, unfortunately. It's another story, but... Uh, it's a huge value. So the ability for this product to stand out against the rest of the products on the market that will make it attractive, this is a big uh, factor. And it, it's, it's calculable. You, we can set values on this. This is worth 100 extra euros to us, this product idea, because it can do this and nobody else can do that. So we think we can get an extra 100 euros out of that. Time to profit. That cash curve again. How long is it going to be from the day we start this to the day we're actually going to get not the money back, but a profit? This is a really important thing. And unit costs. So these are things we're measuring against and the problems I've already explained that we have to address. So what are the principles that are going to help us achieve these things? 
And the way we think about it, we're trying to drive basic principles, often of behavior, really, the way we work, that will or will not create these things, do get the ideas quickly through, allow you to develop the design quickly, allow you to get the right design against what the customer wants, allow you to produce it quickly. These are the kind of behaviors, many of them, of course, technology and things, but they're actually behaviors of groups of people that are driving this. What are the drivers that we need to work with? Then we can figure out what tools and methods we can apply to our organization to make things better. Because there are a million things I could do, or anybody could do. I don't know if they work. So you know, I could tell everyone to, to allocate, tell me exactly how much time they spend on everything they're doing. Maybe that will help improve their performance. Probably won't, but uh, I could do that. Uh, you know, I could give them the best CAD tools in the world, the, the latest automotive design CAD tools in the belief that will help them. I don't know. Uh, probably won't. But what am I, can I do here that's going to improve and really drive these uh, measures that we've got here? I'll just go back to this. This is, um, I started by saying product development's a risk. I don't know how many of you work for manufacturing, but uh, in our world, manufacturing has a long pedigree of improving its performance based around lean production, which is a very specific way of thinking about how you manufacture things. And product development is slightly different. So in product development, this is about creating value through the processing of information to create knowledge. This is basically the, what product development is trying to do from start to finish. You're trying to look at from the eyes of the customer, continuously drive the ability to continue to improve the rate at which knowledge is created, information processed, and thus the rate at which risk, uncertainty is reduced. It's a risk funnel. Every time you reduce risk, what you're doing is gaining knowledge. So now I know how to produce it. Now I know how to sell it. You're taking a risk out. You're gaining some knowledge. And you're doing it in the eyes of the customer. Whereas manufacturing is slightly different. It's the processing of physical variables, physical materials. You know what you want to do. You're just trying to make it better, reduce the variability of that system. So we're in this world here. And we're looking at drivers that are going to be able to create this kind of performance. I won't go through that. I'm going to go through some of these drivers. I won't go through the process of how we found them and, <laughs> and why they're there and, and what we did and that. But just to give you a flavor, I won't go through them all, but I'll go through a good part of them. Um, and then I'll try and give you a flavor of why these are drivers. So customer value at the center. So it sounds very... Yeah, catchy. But I talked about value and how important it is for product development that you know the value. So when I'm saying putting customer value at the center, I don't mean you know, value the customer and speak nicely to him. I mean you know exactly in this product what it is the customer will value. Will the customer value the fact that it's Wi-Fi or not? And will he value it a lot or not? You know, Apple didn't put Bluetooth until the last generation on their iTouch. Everyone else has Bluetooth, standard nearly. They didn't put it in. Why haven't they put it in to last generation? They were pretty darn sure that it was a low-value item. People wouldn't pay for Bluetooth. They would buy their product anyway without Bluetooth. It might be nice to have. There might be a lot of customers out there who say, yeah, it would be great to have Bluetooth. The fact is they still sold 30 million without Bluetooth in their iTouch. So they knew that there weren't that many people who were willing not to buy their product for Bluetooth as long as they got the other features, the Wi-Fi, the apps. They were much more valuable. So putting the customer value at the center and going after that. Don't do what the customer won't pay for. 
bring that in later as an add-on. Do what really is the customer value. And that's not so easy, because you have to find out what the customer wants as well. That's, that's pretty tough. Prioritize. I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. So customer value, I think I've said this, it drives the differentiation. The ability to charge more for this than others is the ability to identify the customers willing to pay more because the customer values it even more than the price. If you understand the customer value, it actually reduces decision time making. If a, if a company, I said it takes a long time to make a decision to go forward. If a manager has a couple of ideas uh, in front of him, if you can explain to him um, in terms of the customer value why this idea is better than another, he will make a decision a lot faster. Because now he'll understand why you think this product's better and he'll, he'll be willing to give you money and fund it. It, it's, it speeds up division making immensely. You could save months of time by working with value. It reduces the time between cross functions. I don't know how difficult it is for you guys to talk to other disciplines, but I can assure you a product development guy and a marketing guy and a sales guy and a production guy, they don't speak necessarily the same language. They do come from different worlds and they have to talk together. One of the things they can talk about in common is the value around the customer. If the sales guy knows the value, he knows how to sell it. If the product development guy understands the value, he knows what things the customer will, will that he can put in the product, the Wi-Fi against the Bluetooth, and what he, he shouldn't put in the product. And production will have a much better idea what is absolutely key they get right when they're producing in the supply chain. It reduces the time to hand over between all these functions and talk together. It creates an effective foundation for scoping the products. It's a, I mean, the number of projects you can start in a company, and the project leader has given a brief, and someone said, let's create a new valve for Russia. And he's sitting with a piece of paper, and that's what it says, create a new valve for Russia. And he sits there for ages trying to figure out, what do I do? What, what does that mean? But if he, someone tells him, and, he, and the value is identified, exactly why Russians want to buy a new valve, what is it they're looking for, then he can get going much quicker. So it's a huge driver of time. And it's quite complex. You need to know value where you're going. So I'm going to Russia and I'm going to high-rise flats. And that's, that's where I want to sell to. You have to identify exactly what it is people who are building high-rise flats like and what they don't like. So we have high pressures, low pressures. We have bad water supply, good water supply. It's very dirty water, it's clean water. All these things are going to affect what they're going to pay for. We, don't, we can't pay much money, we can pay a lot of money. And then you have to make sure that when you decide, you agree on the value. And then you define the value in terms of a project, and then you can protect the value, make sure that as you develop, you don't throw away the, the thing the customer wants. Again, if you work with the value, you can make sure you do that. And then you deliver it to the customer. So it's, 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 an, it's a, like a common communication theme that allows you to go from A to Z in a uniform way talking about value. Business case this is a, not a trick question. You have three products. Each product's going to take one year to develop. You as a pro, uh, manager can decide to run all three together and it'll take you three years. Or you could develop project A, take you one year, then do product B, take you one year, and do product C, one year. What's the best thing to do? Which scenario is best? Anyone? I'd do it serially, yeah. make a choice. We talked about cash flows. If you do the first one first, after one year, 
you're going to be selling it and some money is going to come in and you're going to get the money and you can help use that to pay the next one. And then while you're doing the next one, you're, you're selling the first one. And then when you've done that, you can do the next one. But that assumes there's no economy of scale the doing them simultaneously. I mean, unless it's the same platform and it's just variants around the platform. Remember, it's development, it's not production. So unless you're basically doing, and then, it, then you have, I'd argue, is it three products? I mean, usually when we do a platform, it's one project. Because you always have to have, uh, in our business, you can never make one product. You have to make a range from a platform, usually. So, so it can happen, but it's, it's very rare. These would be three uh, fairly, they would use the same technologies, but they would be uh, different plat uh, platforms, probably. Or but, but that also assumes that they're all being constructed by the same people, right? Because if they were really tightly independent platforms. Yeah, but, but uh, we, we have a limited resource. It doesn't matter whether we do it in-house or out-house. It's not like we have a big pot of money. So, you know, assuming all ideal conditions, uh, this makes sense. But it's a very, very tough thing for businesses to do. Most businesses would rather do this because, you know, you've got customer A, some huge customer out there who's desperate and says they'll buy a million units of this or whatever it is. So this is really important for everyone. But, you know, and he's in North America, but, you know, this Chinese customer or this German guy, he wants this, and he's really pressing you for that. And that's really important. You know, and, and, and you know this product's going out of, uh, you know, it's, it's 10 years old, and if we don't do something about it, no one's going to buy it anymore, so you have to do that one. So you're sitting with these choices, and everything is important. So you try and do everything. But this works. This one I mean, this is the ideal, of course, then you get problems and then things don't work anyway, so they all stretch out. This is really hard to do. To say, okay, I know I need to do three, but I'm going to tell customer B and C to wait. They'll get it, but their alternative was to get it anyway out here. And I'll do this first, and I'll put the right amount of people on this, and then I'll do this, and I'll get it done, and I'll put everyone I need on it, and then I'll do this. This prioritization, this is a principle. If you don't prioritize, you're going to be slow and things are not going to work. So we work very hard prioritizing. Sounds very, very basic. Telling people what's your best project, which one are you going to do first, and then do that. Don't do everything else. Commit to that, and then you can move on to the next one. It's really tough, but it, this is a principle. If we get this right, we can speed up our product development, I don't know, 20% just by doing this. Simple. So, it increases the throughput of high-value projects. It avoids delays due to turbulence, switching costs, too many things. People, if you, if you have five tasks, I mean, it's even worse, I suspect, in R&D, but if you've got uh, five tasks, and you know, one day you have to do one, and then you have to switch your mind over to something else, and you have to switch your mind to a third thing, that's really tough. You like to focus. People like, especially development, they like to focus. Prioritization allows you to focus. It maximizes your experts. There are never that many experts in a company. The people who really understand the fundamental technology you're playing with. And they're always going to be pulled on all the projects. They very rarely get allocated to one project. If you can do this prioritization, then you can maximize their value. They can spend their time on what they're good at instead of switching around between lots of things. And you get profits quicker. So it's a principle. If we can do this, we can make a big impact on our ability to produce products. Proactive risk mitigation by front-loading. What does that mean? Here's a story. Product development is a project process. You sit down 
as a project leader at zero and you're told you want something out on the market you know in year X and you've got this time so you sit there and you plan you know first I'm gonna have to do this and then I'm gonna have to do this and then I'm gonna have to do this and then I'm gonna have to do this you make a plan all these things that need to be done the marketing the production the development all these guys and you make this plan and it goes down like this and then you launch your team, I need these guys first here, I need some development guys, and a bit later I need sales and I need production and so on. But what happens in real life? Every time, it's a risk. So every time you do something, there's an uncertainty, and that uncertainty will usually result in an unforeseen problem. And the unforeseen problem comes up and your plan gets delayed. And then you do a bit more, and then another problem comes up and then it gets delayed again. And you get these kind of delays building up in your plan slowly. So it's the best plan in the world, there's nothing surprising, but just natural human nature delays, and everything starts to slide. You get to about here, and you think, shit, I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm six months out, I'm a year out, what do I do? So I start asking for more resource. Of course, it's a priority project, so they give you more resource. Uh, so you start panicking, you load it completely up, you miss your launch date, everyone's going full speed, and then you, you get it done, and you're late. If you take these risks, all these things here, and look at them, if any of them can be pushed forward, if you can do high-risk items early, it doesn't matter where they are, it could be a production, it could be something you're going to do in a year and a half, but if you can solve it, you know it's a risk, and you can do it early through a simulation or something like that, you're going to upfront all the really, you know, the unknowns up here, and you're going to try and crunch them, problem-solve them early. It's going to take more resource, um, but if you do it early, then when you start getting down here, you're not going to get all these surprises. You're going to have taken them out of the equation. Uh, so if you can front-load the risk, you'll front-load the resource, but you'll have a much better chance of meeting your time. And the total resource, the area under the curve, is smaller. So you're not going to use so many people. It's counterintuitive for many project leaders to work like this. So if we can get them to think like this, any way that can front-load their risks, simulation, prototyping, solving key questions early, then we're going to help them meet their time targets and probably their quality targets and so on. So front-loading risk, time to market, more predictable. We're going to get closer to the ideal. We're going to avoid catastrophic delays. Actually, you're going to avoid catastrophic events because if you front-load risk, you're going to catch that thing that you just missed completely. You know, the supplier happens to be going bankrupt that you've completely counted on. You've got no alternative. If you really look at your suppliers early, you probably might discover that and then think, oh, I better have an alternative supplier. Um, prior knowledge, building that in quickly and so on. This one is turning out to be probably one of the most powerful things we're starting to do. Everyone works cross-functionally in product development today in, in most companies. So it's a given. You have a project leader and you give him a cross-functional group of people, production, designers, sellers, and so on. And they're called a cross-functional team and they work you know, in co concurrent engineering and so on. But the reality is, I don't know, it's cross-function by email. So you, know, you do something in design, you email it to marketing because he's too busy to turn up. So he's somewhere in another country probably because you're global. And he looks at it over the email and he sends you a reply and says, yeah, it's okay. So you go on. You know, and then you give him the product and say, ah, no, but that's not what, what I wanted. And you say, but you said it was okay. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was okay, but I didn't, obviously didn't understand it. So it's, it's not really cross-functional. So how do you solve that? We don't have, 
we're not an automotive industry. I don't know if anyone's worked in automotive. In automotive industry, just the, the engineering group working on one car can be 100 people in a room, you know, just that. In our world, you might just have half a guy. He's your engineering, or one guy, or two guys. And you've got half a marketing guy, and you've got a, a quarter of a purchasing guy, and you've got a production guy sort of half-time. You know, you, your team might be five or six people, seven people, a big team for us, 10 people. You know, something absolutely ginormous out of this world, 30 people. There's a few like that, but almost never happens. So cross-tones of events. Bring everyone together for a short period and have a very, very clear goal in that period. In this period, we're going to define exactly what the specification or what the customer wants. So we're going to design the, the, the concept of the product. We've got four days to do it, period. Everyone together and drive the event in a professional way for those four days. And then everyone can split up again, and, but they'll know what they're doing and they can work and then bring them together again for another event. Hugely powerful to save time and drive up quality. It's amazing what it can do. So we really work with this. Sounds banal, but it works. Aligns the project, accelerates. And then the last one I'll talk about, coordination. This is going to sound quite draconian, I think, if you're not uh, used to something like this. But um, optimize resource productivity sounds terrible. So how do you get the most out of your people? in a way that they agree to, so they're with you. I mean, one of the great things of product development is it's a risk game, and, and never, no one's quite sure what's going on, so it, you have to motivate your team, and they have to be very clear. It's not like production, where you know exactly what you need to do every second, and you just make sure you do it. Uh, people can, you know, you never know what they're doing, so that unless they're motivated and committed to what you want them to do, you'll never know if they're productive or not. They can always pretend to be. It's not the issue. So how do you optimize the interest, keep the team going, and accelerate feedback and decisions? This is really that. Yeah. So I don't know, if you have a report deadline or do anything like that at the end of the week, when, if you have to go to Peter, I guess, on Friday and tell him what you're doing, when did you prepare the work? When was the, what time of the week did you actually do most of the work for Peter? If it was Friday that you have to do it. Give it to Peter. It wasn't Monday, was it? It was probably Thursday, wasn't it? I think you're talking about a hypothetical situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, people in, in industry are no different. If you're working on a project, if I'm a designer and I maybe have to help three projects out, and project A wants me to, I don't know, do a CAD drawing. Uh, and, and they want to look at it Friday, I'll do the CAD drawing Thursday because I've got all the other stuff I need to do. It's natural. If I meet with the same guy every day and I just say to him, okay, what can you do for me today? Don't tell him what to do, just ask him. Say, you know, we've got this project, I need the CAD drawings by, by two weeks. What can you do today? And he's like, oh, I can give you two hours today. Uh, I'm busy. And then, what can you do tomorrow? I'm out. Okay, fine. What can you do Wednesday? No, I, I can give you the whole Wednesday. They'll do that. Okay, great. Every day. And then meet him the next day. So, did you get that done yesterday? Yeah, I did. Oh, thanks. Or, no, I didn't. Okay. When can you do it? Oh, I can do it tomorrow. Okay, thanks. If you can just talk like that, every day. 
it's going to optimize productivity just by doing that, just by asking those questions. 10 minutes each day or every other day, huge impact. And, and it's not telling people, it's just asking them what they can do for you. Why is, why is that optimized productivity? Why is that better than doing it in one focused effort on third? Sorry? Why is it better doing it that way? Why is, that, why is productivity better doing it that way? People, people just uh, naturally tend to start organising. A, they know what you want because they're talking to you all the time and you're not talking just with individuals, you talk with the team. So everyone knows where everyone else is because usually they're dependent on each other. So it's very much a case of, I need the CAD drawing because I can't do uh, the supplier agreement without the CAD drawing. So purchasing and saying, I need the CAD drawing from Wednesday, when can you help me? If you wait a week, then the guy will say, I did it on Friday, you've actually lost four days of time. That's okay. But if the next week, you wait a week and something else happens, you could lose another three days before you realise. It, it just makes sure everyone is very clear what they need to be done, why it needs to be done, and, and everyone's always on top of what the key issues are and, and working towards it. You, you just find that it works. It's a natural way of getting people to cooperate very quickly and understand each other's situation and, and reconfigure their work in an optimal way. Everyone always tends to know what's the most important task. So they also know if their task is not really important, then they might just delay and say, yeah, I can wait till next week, I'll do something else this week. Um, but they might say, okay, you've got the important task and you're going on holiday, maybe I'll take it. it. It creates this dialogue, and it's the dialogue that allows you to optimize the resource. It's not like making you work exactly the time. So, so the way you do it is very important. Reallocates resource very quickly, levels your workload. People tend to be on top of things much better. And it, this comes back to this point, the next point of this feedback and decision making. If you let them work a week and it's the wrong CAD drawing, they go back and have to redo the whole week of work. If you see them every day and have a chat, then maybe you'll pick up that they're going in the wrong direction within a day or two days and then they'll correct it and they'll get back on track again. So this combined with uh, frequent discussion tends to make sure everything works much, much more smoothly and you don't avoid things. It avoids this death by a thousand cuts phenomenon. This is usually the reason why products get delayed or don't meet targets is death by a thousand cuts. I lost a day, I lost a week. Someone went on holiday and I didn't remember. The supplier didn't live up and so no one followed up for a week. Another week gone. Production said they were going to do something or order something and they didn't do it and I had to get back at them three weeks later. I mean, you know, it's like you're trying to get someone to mend your fridge. It's no different. <laughs> You know, if you don't follow up uh, he won't, and he's forgotten, he won't come and you lose two weeks, you know, your fridge is down for three weeks. It's the same here. So it avoids this death by a thousand cuts. These small delays that, you know, these things take a year, two, three years to develop. You, can, you know, if you lose a day every, uh, you know, week every month, then you're suddenly way out of schedule very, very quickly. It avoids mistaken communication. I'm doing this, you're doing that. We didn't realize that we were duplicating work or not doing the right work. It avoids slow decision making. Take a long time before someone who's got the authority looks at it and takes a decision and you're sitting waiting. And it avoids activities falling between the cracks. I don't know what, how's time? Keep going. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, I think that's it. 
I think that's, that's basically, I mean, it, it, uh, I'll wrap it up with a, a summary of how we look at it, but these are the principles we work with, and these are the things that make huge impact on our product development. If you just have a, a quick look of how we work with things, just to give a quick review. If we look at the front end, how do we do this and work with that now? I'll use the American Idol. <laughs> everyone knows this. It's really good because, okay, you might not agree with that, but everyone knows what you're trying to get out of it. They know the target. You're trying to get some pop singer who's going to be you know, fashionable for a while and very good and attractive to the, to the, the audience. And you're going to start with 10,000 singers. So uh, in many ways, this process that you use in American Idol is very much like an ideal process for product development, idea selection. All ideas are welcome. So there's no bar on what someone in your organization should come with. That's the first. Find a way of getting all ideas. All ideas are welcome. But once they're there, be really rigorous about filtering them, auditions, select them. Give critical feedback. In, in uh, Pop Idol, I think the winner will have performed a minimum of 17 times in front of a live audience, either on telly or off telly. That's a hell of a lot of performances that can be discovered using that to make the selection. So it's the same here. Make sure you very quickly filter down and really the good ideas have to go through multiple hurdles of challenge and discovery uh, very, very quickly. Um, you might never end up where you started with. The singer who wins is never the one you thought would win at the beginning. That's always true. Customer involvement is key. You have this, the television voters. They're the customers for the singer. So if you can get the customer to evolve, also vote on which ideas they like the best in some way, this is really going to help you. And the real investment starts after the process ends. Same with product development. Once you've decided what's your best idea, then you have to spend the money. It comes afterwards, not before. So this is what we do. This is our develop, uh, idea generation and selection process. Find the ideas, manage the ideas, make the decisions. Each one is a stage process using these principles we've discovered and worked with. And then at the other end, translate it into a production. I won't go into that, but take the project, make the concept, get the design, production, and use these ideas we've been playing with to drive the cross-functional team through this process. That's it. Thank you now for a stimulating talk. No mathematics, but lots of ideas no and ways forward. Any questions? Makes sense. Can you? Well, there's another area, say, a research institute. Parts of it should be possible, definitely. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I guess that's for you to <laughs> experiment with. <laughs> I mean, some of the principles of how people work together, they're universal. If you want to get things done uh, in, a, in a very effective way. I don't know, maybe screening of ideas, that could really work. Uh, how do you screen? How do you take, in our case, maybe we take 2,000 ideas for one area. That could be that many that come up. And we have to get that down to five in a very, very short time. And they have to be five good ideas. You know, how do you do that screening? That, maybe that could work to, to really filter uh, large volumes of input down to something in a human way. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering how you uh, 
motivate your staff to generate the ideas in the first place? Is the reward structure put in place? Should, should their idea be the winner and then in some way the person who actually came up with it? Or? We just find, I mean, if you just get our people together and, and give them the task, and we have some ways of structuring idea generation uh, to make them think carefully. But, but most of the people, are, they, they're doing their daily job all the time. So a lot of engineers have loads of ideas. A lot of marketing people have loads of ideas, but they never in their daily job have a chance to do anything with them. They're too busy. So just creating a space, a formal given space where they have to work on something for the future, that does it. Uh, customers are the same. You, know, you just explain what you're doing, go to them, and, and just create a space to do it and structure it in a good way. That's all it takes. It doesn't more than that. Ideas are not hard to come by, actually. Uh, giving people time and space and context to generate them, that's pretty hard to come by. So, so the, the last time you talked about American Idol is involving the customer in the product development. Yeah. is a very appealing notion. How do, how do you rank ideas when you involve the customer? So you know, you might have, been, you might have an American Idol held in mm -hmm. Glasgow or something, right? Or a, a British Idol pop Idol held in Glasgow. So obviously a Scottish uh, singer is going to do really well. But how do you, how do you uh, compensate for the bias in the, in the decision-making process? Are there, are there techniques for doing yeah, that? Yeah, there are. I mean, usually uh, customers can't articulate solutions. They can articulate needs. So they're very good. So often you can start with the customer and, and, and map out where he's really struggling in some dimension. And usually his language is not technical. So his language is, we really need to start working on the energy of our supermarkets. This is a big, big issue for us now, or something like this. Or, or he has some major areas of difficulty technically. Maintenance costs him too much, something like this. So you need to work with him. And those you can work very quickly with him to identify needs then you can come up with ideas that, uh, and then you can perhaps go to him and maybe not sell exactly the idea, but you can give solution spaces. Well, how about if we created a new type of compressor that could do this? And he would say, ah, no, not good. Or maybe say, yeah, that, actually, that could be really good because then we could do this and this and this. And, and then you can get direction from him, which of the idea directions that you're coming up with really excite him. And then you can also pretty well evaluate whether he's willing to pay for it or not. That's sort of a bit more tricky, but you can do that as well. And, and you use that to inform your internal process. I guess I'm wondering, though, you know, you're, you're describing there as sort of probing, uh, probing different directions. But, you know, there's things like, you know, page ranking the internet where you, where you can rank things for the correlations. I'm wondering if there's any sort of mathematical <coughs> approaches to, or sort of semi-rigorous approach to, uh, to doing what? It's an interesting question because we always get asked to create databases and all sorts to track and vote and that. Uh, and and uh, there might be something in that. But, but actually what works best for us is at the end of the day it doesn't really matter if, the comp if, if you have an idea that's absolutely fantastic. Mathematics is the best idea. If there's nobody in the company who's willing to fight for it, then it will die anyway. Because somehow you need to champion the idea through your company. So it could be that you don't get the best idea. Maybe you get the 10th best idea. But that's probably OK. It probably still will give a huge amount of money for you, and it'll be a great idea. Um, so, so we're not so worried about the best idea. 
We worry about an idea that is going to make us money and the customers are going to pay for and want. And if we can do that, and we can do it in a good enough way, that's probably, you know, in a risk sense, uh, the best you're going to do. It could be interesting to explore. Uh, I've never thought about it, but, uh, but I know databases don't work. If you start storing old ideas and then trying to sift them through again, it's much better to kill an idea and then tell someone why you killed it and then ask them to come again in six months when you do the process again and say, you can try and sell it again. So create a, you know, X factor number two and three and four and they know it's going to come. They know why they failed and then they can try and invent a better idea. And, and, and what happens is they learn how to sell. What, why their idea failed? Fantastic, technically nobody wanted it. So the next time they speak to marketing before they come. That, that works much better. Okay, I think we're going to wind this thing up. Yal, thank you very much for giving us those insights. Uh, the idea of being able to give us these views of how things work in industry is very valuable to a research institute like this. So I'd like you to join me now and thank uh, Yal for his contribution today. <laughs>